Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Last week on Impenetrable Two-State Cybersecurity Unit. Seconds from now, the terrible Jaden K. Smith will wipe out every cat video on Facebook. Katerina, is there any way to stop them? Yes, Dr. Potato. But first, we'll need PIN codes for all Americans with last names beginning with letter G. I didn't get all of that. You, you need some kind of penguin? PIN codes. PIN codes. Need certain American PIN codes. Now I understand. Chief Thunder, get her what she needs. Mm, yes, Dr. Potato, if the Great Spirit wills it, I will get them. Tonight, presented by General Motors and Stanislav's Fake Bird Milk Cakes, it's the further adventures of impenetrable two-state cybersecurity unit, featuring our heroes, Yuri, Katerina, Perfect Tommy, Dr. Potato, Pinky, Chief Thunder, and Anton. Let's rejoin our story. Something's wrong with Amazon. Look, there's no way those three items are frequently bought together. Perfect Tommy, can you jam them? I'm trying, Dr. Potato, but they've got control over my webcam, and they're looking at me. Maybe Yuri can help. I have plan, but to make work, I must have answers to this list of questions. It's mainly launch codes, names of secret assets, and Chuck Schumer's medical records. I'll authorize it. But also, I must know, in Carly Simon's song, who is so Wayne? We swore a solemn oath never to reveal it. And now, my trusting and gullible American comrade, you must ask yourself which is more important, the future of e-commerce or some silly promise you made? Tune in next week for the further adventures of impenetrable two-state cybersecurity unit to hear Chief Thunder say... The ghosts of buffaloes visited me in my sweat lodge. They told me I must inform my Russian teammates the man who is so vain is... Colin McEnroe. I knew it. <laughs> All right. So that got revealed? I, I They swore that they would keep that secret about me. Those, of course, are the adventure, adventures of the brandly newly minted impenetrable two-state uh, cybersecurity team, uh, which, of course, was one of the wonderful benefits to humankind that came out of the meeting uh, over the weekend between Vladimir Putin and our own uh, President Trump. Many things uh, happened over the weekend uh, abroad. It's going to take a while, probably, to figure out <laughs> what, they all, what they all were and what they all really mean. We have some uh, initial statements and some attempts to figure out what this means. We're going to talk about that here in the first segment today. Uh, a little bit later in the show, we will um, uh, talk also about a related matter, which was the visit uh, of Donald Trump Jr. Way back in June, uh, just shortly after uh, his father clinched the Republican nomination, uh, a visit at Trump Tower to a supposedly Kremlin-connected lawyer, um, several different stories about what this meeting was have been told. At least two of the different stories have been told by Donald J. Trump uh, about 24 hours apart. So we'll tell you a little bit about what that might mean, why people might want to care about it. And then just because we think you need a break from all this kind of stuff, uh, we will uh, tell you in the uh, final segment about a world without diapers. We have two experts who basically feel as though diapers are... Nowhere near as necessary uh, as uh, they appear to be that there's uh, another thing that you can do 
I guess it would be a spoiler to tell you what that is, uh, but that they, they obviously they produce insane amounts of solid wa- waste. Uh, they clog our landfills. Uh, if you're using the cloth ones, there's a huge energy cost to washing them and getting them ready for another use. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, you, you got to dream. You got to dream. Maybe there'll be no diapers. All right. Now we got to talk about uh, what did happen this weekend. Joining us to do that, Molly McHugh, writer and a foreign policy consultant in Washington, D.C. from 2009 to 2013. Uh, she worked as uh, an advisor to Mikhail Shalikashvili, and I screwed up that name, uh, the president of Georgia. She's been writing about uh, what's been going on abroad right now uh, and wrote about this in particular uh, for Politico, one of the most uh, headlined and frequently read stories uh, out of this weekend. So she's with us now. Hi, Molly. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, sorry, I screwed up the name of the president it's of Georgia. Right. Say it for Everybody me so I, so I do it right. <laughs> president Saakashvili. I wasn't too far off. Um, You're close. <laughs> I was close enough. So, um, so as you write, I mean, there were sort of basically two major kind of uber uh, items going into these, this series of meetings. One of them was how does President Trump square international Trumpism, such as it is, with the goals of the G20. And the other one is what sort of relationship is going to take place between Trump and Vladimir Putin, um, is in particular, in particular around these uh, the election meddling. So let's start with the first one. It seemed as though the answer to that kind of was that we went into the weekend with a G20, we kind of came out with a G19. Is that an overstatement? I think perception-wise, absolutely. And I think that's what matters in this context. I think, um, you know, if you watched President Trump sort of around the margins of the meeting, he was pursuing his his bilateral with President Putin. um, But there was very little other interaction with other leaders. He always looked like he was sort of standing outside the group. Um, He wasn't really sure what he was doing. Um, And the body language was one issue. But again, this is if you look at the substance of this thing, um, okay, so we didn't sign the climate change uh, agreement that everyone else signed on to, including Russia, I would point out, and China and everyone else. Um, uh, so that's one thing, because this is you know, a clear political domestic issue for the president. So maybe you can give him a pass on that. But you know, what was the big topic the president was tweeting about before getting to the summit? It was North Korea. And in a typical uh, political or or diplomatic environment, you would have the United States of America show up at the G20 with a drafted, you know, communique statement on what uh, the G20 nations can do together to help combat the threat from North Korea. Um, And even if it doesn't get signed, it puts tremendous pressure on the Russians, on the Chinese, on other countries that are helping um, North Korea with its missile and nuclear programs. Um, And I think everybody was expecting the United States to do that, as we have in the past, and we didn't. In fact, we didn't come with any issues that we were leading on. There was no single issue that the United States was providing leadership on at the summit. We were just sort of sitting at the table. Um, And and this is part of President Trump's style, this belief in sort of a unilateral um, means of operating in the world and sort of stepping out of all of these uh, structures and alliances in which we have previously played a role for the benefit of the United States. Uh, And I think all of that is really stunning, Um, but certainly it left uh, our European allies um, more convinced than before um, about our sort of departure from the leadership of the free world. Um, And you've heard this echoed not just from Europeans, but but from some of our our Asian allies, from Australia as well. There was some cutting Australian uh, press Mm -hmm. reviews of the president's trip 
So it's a really interesting landscape, but not a positive one for the United States. I just want to uh, pause over the North Korean question, because you, there are some issues where either you can or you can't go it alone, but, but maybe you can go, go it alone a little bit more. North Korea probably is not going to be solved by one nation. And, and, and as you say, failing to have your own draft language with you, failing to, be, to push the two other major players, Russia and China, on this, it does seem like it creates a vacuum. Is there a perceived danger now that if we don't bring everybody, especially those two superpowers to the table, maybe they make their own deal about this or, or everybody goes their own way and, and just does whatever they want to do? Uh, I think there's a, a variety of dangers in this. You know, look, with North Korea, there has always been sort of parallel tracks. There's always the kind of public diplomacy aspect. There's always some kind of back channel. There's always the backroom negotiations with people that we know are more involved. Um, that's how it has to be. But I think the Trump administration's style thus far has been to move all of these types of discussions and negotiations away from these multilateral formats, away from our alliance structures, um, toward these one-on-one -on -one negotiations, typically with more authoritarian or uh, sort of a liberal uh, leaders. Um, and there's a lot of concern in that. I think the other aspect on North Korea is, you know, before the G20 summit, China and Russia kind of got together and put out a statement that was the equivalent of what they always say, which is, if you want to deal with this issue, you have to deal with us. Um, and, of course, they do that because uh, they have investment in keeping North Korea as this, road, this rogue actor on the continent. Um, and they are, again, sort of helping in strange ways with these programs. And it's something that we need to pay more attention to. But this is the kind of environment that, that the Kremlin in particular loves to create, where they are causing a problem, creating a crisis for the United States and other nations to deal with. And then they sort of step up and say, oh, hey, guys, we have a solution. But if you want it, you have to come and deal with us. This is their way of gaining a seat at the table um, repeatedly on a number of issues, as you've seen them do with terrorism, with the crisis in Syria, with a number of other issues. Um, but it's sort of the standard Kremlin playbook to create a crisis and then propose a solution to force people to engage them. You know, this um, everything that we're talking about was preceded by the speech in Warsaw. And the speech in Warsaw was kind of a, a strange animal in a lot of, a lot of different ways. But, you know, it, it so frequently invoked the West, the West, the West, the notion that the West, in order to cohere, in order to prevail, in order to keep its traditions intact, has to take certain steps. But, you know, for a speech that sought such commonality with the notion of the West, it's sort of strange to go from Warsaw to Hamburg and then kind of not really want to hang out with the West that much, right? I mean, how do you how do you interpret that speech, which was obviously a, a kind of clash of civilizations, cautionary speech about dangers from other parts of the world, with the behavior in Hamburg, which really didn't seem to be making common cause with exactly the kind of people that he was seeking identification with? Well, so this is this is really the issue, and I think the speech really warrants a lot more attention. It has been uh, both strongly criticized and very strongly positively reviewed by a variety of different camps. Um, if you, even if you just look at the conservative commentary in the U.S., half of it is like, what the hell was this speech? The other half is saying this was the most presidential speech he's given. But I think um, you, know, you sort of need to see the speech in the context of the audience it was given to. And it was given in Poland, in a country that has had serious democratic backtracking with a populist party in charge. Um, there's been attacks on the Constitution. There's been attacks on their courts um, from the current government. Um, it's a really, uh, it's been a problematic issue for the EU of how to deal with this, that you have um, a number of countries sort of moving in increasingly 
illiberal directions, so away from sort of the standard liberal democratic model that has governed since World War II. Um, but if you look at the language of the speech, um, you're exactly right that there's this class of, clash of civilizations narrative, but the way that it's presented is... Um, uh, the language used was like a direct mirror of what the Kremlin has been using in particular since 2013. But this idea of speaking, you don't talk about values or Western values, you talk about civilization, um, which is not this post-World War II construct that has left Russia on the outside. It's this thousand-year concept of sort of Orthodox Christianity um, and sort of the rise of Christianity in Western Europe that is the birth of, of all the great things that has happened in, in that context in terms of how they use it. Um, and then they're not talking about, Trump's speech didn't talk about alliances, it was talking about sovereignty, so this, these ideas of, of national, sort of ethnically based national identities, um, and not talking about rights, but talking about traditional values. Um, and all of these things sort of separated into different, uh, you know, different lines in the speech don't seem like much, but when you put them together, and layer on, you know, the, the heavy use of destiny. You know, we all need to find our destiny, and the heavy references to history, um, the complete absence of the, the mention of democracy. It is impossible to give a speech about Poland without mentioning democracy in terms of how the American mind understands this country, and yet it was not there. And I think if you look at that and you put it sort of side by side with the language that has been used from the Kremlin, it is remarkably similar. And that is deeply troubling because you have the United States, of, uh, the president of the United States of America on an international stage presenting in a liberal worldview on behalf of our country. And um, this is a very significant shift uh, and one that I think will have long-term consequences for us as a nation internally and externally. Um, and really, no one is paying attention to this because we're not used to evaluating our leaders within this framework. It's totally new territory for us. We're talking to Molly McHugh right now. Her political piece uh, about uh, the most recent presidential trip is kind of a must-read. Um, uh, and I apologize for darting around here, but there's a lot of material to to, to cover here. <laughs> so, I mean, one thing that could possibly ch be chalked up by about it, just about everybody starting maybe with Angela Merkel and moving outwards as a win, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, is finally a an endorsement and an embrace in a Thursday press conference of Article 5. Article 5 is, you know, the basic sort of affirmation uh, of the mutual defense pact uh, of NATO. Um, so, uh, and, and the affirmation, I should say, came from President Trump after having kind of done a little dance about this in the past. So is the fact that he stopped doing the hokey pokey about this, is that good news anyway? Well, he's still doing the hokey pokey, and that's the, the interesting part. You know, he has mentioned this before. When the Romanian president was visiting Washington, he did, again, give a mostly positive, of course, of course, we support Article 5, you know, whatever. Um, it, it's never particularly affirmative or clear action. It never mentions his own view. It will always refer to the country. And again, in, in the speech in Warsaw, you saw the president do this, where he did not actually say, I support this. What he said was, the actions of the United States are going to speak for themselves. And that's particularly interesting because at the press conference with the Polish president just before the speech, um, a Polish journalist asked him a very clear question, which was, um, you know, will you guarantee that the United States of America, we now have new troops deployed in Poland um, as part of the NATO forward deployed battalions. You know, will you, as the United States president, um, guarantee that you will leave um, American troops in Poland until there is no longer a threat of Russian aggression to our country? And his answer was this very cagey, I'm not in a position to discuss guarantees. I don't really know. We can't really discuss guarantees. You know, oh, but we'll see. We'll keep talking. 
And the Polish president confirmed that. He said he's planning a trip to Washington next year um, and that they will continue discussions then. So the fact that, that you know, there's sort of still the dance about Article 5 and what that means in the U.S. context, um, you know, the, the, the really important point about the collective defense treaty, um, it, and everybody knows this in terms of what you know, what will actually trigger it, and there's been a lot of discussion in the modern context about um, new types of attacks that would trigger, trigger Article 5, including cyber attacks and other things, but, um, uh, but also the speed with which we respond. Uh, in, in all cases, if there is um, a Russian or other attack on a NATO ally, um, the speed of response is critical, and if we're dancing around and not being very clear about our commitments, then that's a problem. And I think right now the biggest problem is most of our European allies are supremely uncertain about where we stand, um, because where Trump's commitments have been so far is to uh, a liberal-leaning nations, to the strange non-committal language. The meeting with Putin is going to be incredibly damaging to how our allies see us, um, because it's clear that Trump has chosen alliance with Putin over supporting alliance with our Western allies. Right. So... So let's go there. So now we're going to get into the really head-scratchy territory. Um, and, and you used the phrase a couple seconds ago, everybody knows, which seems to be one of the interesting phrases of the weekend. So on Thursday in Poland at the press conference, uh, Donald Trump said nobody really knows uh, whether Russia interfered in the 2016 U.S. elections. Um, he says, uh, so it was Russia and I think it was probably others also after having first said nobody really knows. Um, Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., on Sunday was saying, everybody knows. Everybody knows that Russia meddled in our elections. So it seems even on something as basic as as this, the administration as a whole doesn't have a consistent stance. Uh, It's consistent with the exception of the president and sort of his talking head minions around him. It's this incredibly uh, stark divide. Um, and the question is sort of why, you know, does the president believe by say, speaking about this publicly he would hurt his chances of alliance with the Russians? Does the president still conflate these two issues of, of believing Russia is a threat with his own legitimacy as president, which he clearly does? Um, but is that the only thing? Is there more? Nobody really knows. And I think, you know, even coming out of the meeting, the initial readout from the secretary of state um, out of the meeting with Putin was that the president raised the concerns of the American people about this issue. So he may still not himself believe in it and may still not himself. I mean, for all we know, he was in the meeting going, hey, was there really any of this hacking or was there not? Um, the way the Americans, or, or certainly the way that, that, that Secretary Tillerson presented this was that the president pressed Putin on it. The Russian readout was that he asked many questions. Um, so, again, this is standard Russian fare, kind of muddling the outcome of, of bilaterals. But um, given the, that the president has never yet to this point clearly expressed a belief that the Russians uh, have, have tried to impact our elections despite everyone else in the U.S. government, military, and intelligence services saying so, um, and uh, has never provided any belief uh, that there needs to be some sort of consequence for this, I would find it very hard to believe he raised it in the meeting, particularly given the focus on, quote, moving on and moving forward, 
um, and basically declaring that Russia is going to pay absolutely no price and bear no consequences for an attack on American society, which is a tremendous abdication from the American president. Can we talk about that no consequences stuff? That seems to be a place where his own party is going to sail away from him. I mean, it's already happening. Um, I mean, it, it happened weeks ago uh, when the Senate voted, what was it, like 98 to 2 or some yep. overwhelming vote saying, yes, there are going to be sanctions, there are going to be more sanctions. You know, we are, we are, Russia is not going unpunished. And that is something, as a, as a deeply divided, highly partisan na- nation right now, we have utter agreement in the U.S. Senate. They, don't, they can't agree on lunch they agreed on this. So, I mean, how, how can he chart this other course? How can that possibly work? I think you'll see a really mixed way of doing this. I think it's important um, to keep in mind that on almost every issue of foreign policy, and there are exceptions, uh, creating uh, new restraints on whether sanctions can be lifted or not, or the the levying of new sanctions is a place where, where the Senate and where the Congress can play a very strong role. Um, but most foreign policy uh, is very much uh, at the reign of the executive. And um, it is clear that President Trump has decided that pursuing a warmer embrace of the Kremlin is what he is going to do. Um, and it is clear that there's things that he's going to try to help deliver for them. Um, I think there's a lot of things on the list that people are sort of keeping an eye on as potential trigger issues. You know, is he compromising on Ukraine? Is he backing off on sanctions? That I don't actually think will be the issue. I think, um, you know, the Kremlin is smart enough to know if they pressure Trump on certain issues, it will create a backlash in the United States. And if you try to move forward on different issues, um, where the president has more ability to move, that can actually yield more significant results for them. And I think you see some of this happening. Um, you know, this, the, the announcements coming out of the meeting were this creation of this ridiculous joint cybersecurity commission, which probably will never happen because our intelligence services would probably try to stage a coup <laughs> instead of sit in a room with Russian cybersecurity experts and talk about mutual solutions to our problems. But um, there was sort of the announcement of, of the U.S. and Russia cooperating on cybersecurity together, which everybody has reacted to so badly, even the president has sort of had to back, backtrack it. Um, the second thing was we've agreed to mutually not criticize or meddle in each other's internal affairs. Um, again, this is aligning the U.S. behind a key Kremlin talking point, which for years and years has been that any unrest within Russia, any protests, any demonstrations, anything going wrong, you know, a bad Christmas present, anything else, is the result of uh, U.S. funding or George Soros or something else, but these outside actors that are to blame for everybody's problems. Um, so this really endorses that view, which is uh, also very troubling. And then the third thing was this sort of limited ceasefire agreement announced on Southwest Syria, um, which really won't uh, be very, it's not nothing very new. Nobody will really know if it will stand for very long. It doesn't really actually apply to the U.S. or Russia or any of Russia's allies in Syria, which would include Iranian militias and Hezbollah and Hamas and other really um, unsavory forces that they're using as ground troops. Um, it only applies to Assad's forces and to the Syrian um, opposition and rebels. And uh, again, so it's sort of a very limited thing, but it looks like a nice, juicy deliverable coming out of the meeting. But we cannot work with Russia and Syria. We do not share common goals with them. It was very surprising to hear the Secretary of State say that. Um, I think the Kremlin has been pretty clear that they do not believe in the same vision and view of the future of the Middle East as we do, um, and or at least as we should. Um, so I think there's you know, this was a very, it was a very strange moment, but it shows that the president does have a lot of leeway 
to try to negotiate these types of deals and agreements um, that will be outside of the purview of Congress in many respects. Um, and even if none of them ever move forward, it creates this perception and momentum um, and dialogue with a country that is very much an aggressor against us. And that's the other part of this meeting is, okay, so you were talking about these issues and maybe you raised the U.S. election or not and then agreed that Russia will pay no consequences for what they've done. But um, what did you not raise? You know, were, did you raise um, concerns about Ukraine? Did you raise concerns about the Russians again moving forward the occupation line in Georgia, where 20% of the country is still occupied by Russian troops? Did you raise all of the concerns that have been put out about increased Russian intelligence activities in the United States, about um, Russian cyber attacks on U.S. nuclear power plants, you know, on all these other things that are happening um, uh, about North Korea and elsewhere, you know, where Russia literally is on the opposite side of the United States, directing attacks against us. They're supporting the, Tal the Taliban in Afghanistan while the Taliban is killing American troops. Did we discuss any of those issues, or were we just interested in figuring out a way that we can all be besties? Right. And we know they talked for two hours about something, but probably not any of the things that you just named. Molly probably McHugh, not. thank you so much for joining us. Read Molly McHugh's uh, coverage uh, of this uh, in Politico.com. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. And it, it links very well because we're going to go back in time to June 9th when, in fact, there was somebody talking to Donald Trump Jr. about the way that Russia doesn't like it when we criticize anything that goes on inside of Russia. All right, we are back. So there is a way, I mean, it's dizzying, right, trying to keep track of all this stuff. But in a way that is completely dizzying, there's a way in which everything that happens happened uh, this weekend in, in Hamburg and in Warsaw um, connects back to um, things that happened during the campaign, things that are currently under investigation by Robert Mueller. We're going to try to explain one of them to you. It's pretty complicated, like all these things tend to be. Uh, but we do know, and you probably do know too if you followed the news at all this weekend, that Donald Trump Jr. had a meeting uh, in early June, uh, about two weeks after his father had been uh, confirmed as the uh, as the nominee, uh, sewed up that nomination anyway uh, for the Republican Party, uh, a meeting at Trump Tower. And uh, joining us to explain the details of that meeting and then talk about the legal ramifications of it uh, are Justin Miller, national editor for the Daily Beast, and Adam Liptak, who covers the Supreme Court for the New York Times. Uh, welcome to both of you. Uh, Justin, I'm going to have you start us off, just go through the nuts and bolts of this. I mean, Donald Trump Jr. himself has essentially told two different stories within about 24 hours, but there are certain things that we do absolutely know happen. What are those things? Hi. Um, so these things are that on June 9th, uh, 2016, last year, two days after Hillary Clinton mathematically clinched the nomination, two weeks after um, Donald Trump Jr.'s father clinched the nomination, um, his eldest son had a meeting with a Russian lawyer named Natalia Veskonaya, I think it's the way you say her name, at Trump Tower. Uh, and joining him in that meeting were Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort, Trump's then-campaign manager. The meeting, according to Donald Jr. himself, began with the Russian lawyer telling him and Kushner and, and Manafort that she had some sort of um, damaging information on Hillary Clinton. Uh, according to Don Jr., uh, in a statement, he said, well, this, this, this lawyer, what she was saying was vague, and we moved on to another topic, which was um, the frozen 
adoption process uh, to send Russian children to the United States. Um, Don Jr.'s original story, what he told the New York Times on Saturday before this real bombshell published on Sunday, is that the meeting was only about Russian adoptions, uh, that there was nothing, let's say, untoward about the meeting. And then uh, after that story had published, or basically the second story uh, about the time it had published, Don Jr. said in a statement that it was a false pretext uh, of the the lawyer that she was going to deliver damaging information. So in other words, Don Jr. freely admits that he took the meeting because he was expecting this lawyer to deliver dirt on Clinton, and he claims that she didn't uh, live up to the promise. That's where we are in terms of that meeting. Right. So he effectively describes it as kind of a bait and switch, right? That, you know, that she got to him. She got the meaning by saying we've got dirt on the on the Clintons or we've got dirt on on Mrs. Clinton. um, uh, When, in fact, she had this whole other agenda involving the the Magnitsky Act, which we can talk a little bit about if there's time. But um, uh, just want to add Adam Liptak for The New York Times into this uh, conversation. Now, obviously, this is you know, part and parcel of probably what Robert Mueller is investigating right now. Um, It's a little more detailed than a lot of the things that we know. It's not typical for one of the big players in this story, uh, like Donald Trump Jr., to actually describe a meeting like this and describe the fact that, that, that yes, that this was, um, you know, this was sort of what got him to the table, the possibility of getting some information like this. But, I mean, that's sort of how we understand it in the popular imagination. In terms of actual legal questions, what are the really salient ones here? Well, I mean, as, as the discussion suggests, at a minimum, that's an ill-advised statement on Donald Trump Jr.'s part. Why, why he should be admitting that that's the reason he took the meeting is really extraordinary. And it, the shifting rationales also raise the question of has he talked to federal law enforcement and made statements that he has to revise, which could lead to legal trouble. But also in, in the election realm, there are laws and regulations that strictly prohibit foreign nationals from participating in our elections, including by uh, making a donation of a thing of value. Uh, And I think we might be hearing a lot more about that phrase because damaging information might be said to be a thing of value. And the law applies not only on the foreign national side, but you also can't solicit or receive from a foreign national a thing of value in connection with a political campaign. And, you know, as with so much else in this area, this is a a fast-evolving set of facts. But you start to get in the zone where it might be that the categorical statements we were hearing only weeks ago about no obstruction, no collusion, are starting to collapse a little bit. Well, and Adam, one question that I had, and uh, granting that you are neither a member of uh, Robert Mueller's task force nor a sitting federal judge or anything else like that, but um, one of the questions that I had is, to what degree is the phrase Kremlin connected something that needs to be pinned down? I mean, let's just for a moment assume that this woman was essentially a free agent doing whatever she wanted to do or had to do because of problems with the Magnitsky Act, as opposed to someone with some murky but ultimately locatable tie to some aspect of the Russian government. Is that an interesting and important question uh, in terms of the stuff that's going to be playing out in the months ahead? In different areas of the law, it might well matter whether she's an agent of a foreign government. But for election law purposes, all you have to be is a foreigner. 
You can be, uh, you know, a guy on the street who wants to contribute $100 to one campaign or the other. And if you're a Russian, you're not allowed to, and it's a crime. Uh, So it depends on which sort of legal rationale we're pushing on. Uh, But um, uh, for for at least election law purposes, how closely connected she is to the Kremlin doesn't matter. So, Justin Miller, um, you know, Adam Liptak a second or two ago talked about kind of blanket denials that have taken place over weeks and really months. I mean, really from the time this thing became a story, there have just been these kinds of uh, denials coming from, you know, virtually every sector of Trump land, from, from the president himself to people like Donald Trump Jr. and Kellyanne Conway and other spokespersons. And, you know, you can go through them all. People are doing amazing reporting all over the place on this. Of course, the Times did incredible reporting to get this story. Aaron Blake from The Washington Post has sort of a list of every denial that has been issued about this. And and it does seem as though what Donald Trump Jr. says right now, not anybody else saying it, but what he says on the record right now, really, you know, substantially contravenes a lot of those denials. Uh, You know, it may be a legal problem in Adam's world, but Justin, just out here in the regular world, is, is it a problem? Well, I think it is. Uh, you know, legally, they may be able to try to slice that, uh, those statements thinner and thinner to have them survive. But the thrust of it, right, ever since the Russian hacking was, you know, revealed last year and certainly since the Steele dossier was published this past January, the thrust of it has been that the allegations, at least, excuse me, um, have been that the Trump campaign had some communications if not actually a, a conspiracy or a you know partnership with the Russians and the you know the campaign the campaign and Trump um, the denials were well that's impossible because we never even spoke to any Russians and then there was a drift 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 of meetings that were never disclosed with uh, Russia's ambassador to the United States Sergei Kislyak right and this is the thing that led Jeff Sessions in the most extreme case uh, to recuse himself from the Russian investigation. Um, so, you know, they've been backpedaling for a while, uh, and it's had not just political ramifications, but as I just said, Jeff Sessions' recusal, um, a real ramification. In addition, the way that we know about this meeting uh, that happened between the Russian lawyer and Donald Trump Jr. last year is because his brother-in-law, Jared Kushner, had amended uh, the security clearance form called an SF-86 that says, all right, we'll list all the you know, contacts you've had with, I believe it's foreign officials. So this woman wasn't necessarily foreign official, but in any event, Kushner's lawyer says that they had included this meeting in that form. So the fact of the matter is the administration, people concerned with it, are already having to go back and correct the record, at least in an official capacity, and then it leads to something like this coming out. So it's having real real impacts here. Um, that they've had to keep adjusting and trimming and hemming and hawing their excuses. Well, yeah, and Adam, can we just come back to that adjusting and trimming? You said that, you know, it's possible. I mean, nobody really knows what Donald Trump Jr. has said so far to federal investigators when questioned. But if this exists in stark contrast to them, I think you use the phrase, uh, you know, maybe amend some of what he said. But at a certain point, federal investigators have a habit of losing patience with you about this. At a certain point, it becomes obstruction of justice, right? You told the federal investigators something that wasn't true. 
Yeah, more than that. I mean, it's simply a, cri- a crime to lie to an FBI agent, and that's the kind of thing that gets lots and lots of people into trouble. I have no idea what Donald Trump Jr. said to investigators, but if this moving target is uh, is emblematic of the Trump administration's view of this stuff, it's not hard to imagine people getting caught up in uh, you know this these these kind of revisions. And if you later say something uh, that you had earlier said something different from, that's a fairly easy case to make. All right. Well, Adam Liptak, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this part of the conversation. I really appreciate uh, having you here. Uh, Adam Liptak, Liptak, who covers, among other things, the Supreme Court and federal law for The New York Times. You know, I'd just like to just take a, another minute or two, Justin Miller, and just I, I, maybe it's worth mentioning if this was kind of a bait and switch. In other words, if this woman got this lawyer, got um, uh, got Donald Trump Jr. and others, we should say, I mean, Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort, into a room claiming that she had some stuff that might be useful for the campaign, and then it wasn't really there. And what she really wanted to talk about uh, was the Magnitsky Act. This is an act that, um, th- that does impose sanctions on human rights violators in Russia. It's the, sort of what they do as human rights violators there have consequences here. Their assets can be frozen. Their travel can be obstructed, stuff like that. That, in turn, led to a kind of a, a Vladimir Putin temper tantrum saying, all right, no more Russian orphan adoptions for you. Um, this also seems to kind of fit into what happened this weekend, right? That Donald Trump is, and the Magnitsky Act is sort of a, a, a creature of the Obama years. And, and this, it does seem as though President Trump is eager to put aside a lot of those things and get his relationship with Putin and Russia on a different footing. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that whenever you hear in the discussion of this story, broadly speaking, whenever you hear the term Magnitsky Act or even the adoptions and orphans, replace that with sanctions, okay? Mm-hmm. This woman is there to repeal the act that sanctioned people, not so much to have Vladimir Putin rescind his tit-for-tat retaliation. We know that Putin was very angry, to put it lightly, about the fact that Russian government and sort of oligarch-type people were being individually sanctioned. Remember, this bill... This Magnitsky Act became law before the invasion of Crimea. So in a sense, this was the first sanctions against Russia levied by the United States in the past couple of years. We've become numb to it because of what happened with Crimea and what happened after the, after the election hacking. Um, but this was the first one, and Putin really sees it as a personal slight. So what happened was the Russian lawyer has a meeting with the son of one of the two people who's going to become the next president of the United States and is pressing them to relieve or revisit these sanctions. I mean, that's by definition because you can't fix the adoption problem, so to speak, until you fix the sanctions problem. Now, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that she's maybe dangling this promise of Clinton information. Maybe she hasn't delivered it yet. And she's opening up the conversation to loosening the sanctions. So if you want the Clinton information, you got to come play ball with me and at least, you know, be open to reversing the sanctions. So what she's really doing there, I think, is setting up, um, you know, a potential quid pro quo. Not that there was sort of these would be the parameters of our discussion. You want dirt? You want help from us? Well, you know, let's let's see if you can help us on the Magnitsky Act. So these things are um, it's a bait and switch. But it's also not. Yeah, gotcha. 
All right. That's actually very helpful, and that uh, clarifies a lot. Justin Miller, thank you so much, Justin Miller, national editor with The Daily Beast. We've got to take a break here right now. We're going to come back. Uh, we're, uh, we're assuming you're a little exhausted from all the detail that we've just thrown at you over these last two uh, segments about Trump and overseas stuff. So we're going to switch topics. We're going to talk about a different kind of world, a world without diapers. It covers the schemers and you lie, deceit, lie, 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 deceit, lie, deceit, lie, collusion. I have nothing to do with Russia. Okay. Can we cut to the chase? Can I get a Russian orphan or not? I'm tired of going to parties where I'm the only person who doesn't have one. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. With help from me, Kyone Wolf, Amanda Fish has taken the week off to get ready for Game of Thrones. Our intern is Carmen Baskoff. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eric Trump. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation about Rorschach blots. And now... Back to Colin. We've got lots of other excitement ahead during the week for you, but no time to tell you about it right now. This is a story we wanted to do actually for quite a few weeks now. We're finally going to get to do it. Uh, it does involve, as I said before, a notion that maybe diapers uh, are not as essential as everybody thinks that they are. And in fact, mankind got along without them for a certain amount of time. Maybe we could try to do that again. Uh, Dr. Rosemary Shea joins us, pathologist and associate professor of clinical pathology at Keck School of Medicine of USC, the director of microbiology at Keck Medical Center at USC. Also joining us, uh, her husband, Dr. Jeffrey Bender, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Keck School of Medicine of USC and Pediatric Infectious Disease Physician at Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. So, um, Dr. Rosemary Shea, I'm going to begin with you. Um, this uh, all hinges, this notion uh, of maybe breaking our addiction to diapers. And, and we'll talk in a couple of seconds about why we might want to break that addiction. I think it probably should be pretty obvious to people, but some details would be helpful. But before we do that, this all hinges on something called elimination communication, which doesn't really sound like what it is we're about to talk about. What is elimination communication? Yeah, so elimination communication, it's also known as natural infant hygiene, and it's a practice where um, the caregiver is attuned to the natural timing and cues of the infant to when they need to go potty. Um, and they have the infant do so into a receptacle like a toilet uh, rather than straight into a diaper. Um, and then with time, the infant will also learn to respond, and then, you know, with time, efforts to potty become coordinated between the infant and the caregiver. And like you said, it's been practiced um, for ever since, you know, millennia, um, and it's still practiced in dozens of countries around the world and was even practiced here in the U.S. and in the West until recently. Um, you know, and, and Dr. Jeffrey Bender, I think it's worth noting that um, obviously diapers may be a source of convenience, although I don't think most people think of them as particularly convenient, um, but they're not necessarily healthy for infants, right? So, uh, diapers, and unless you change the diaper instantly, diapers usually involve infants sitting close to stuff that isn't good for their skin, isn't good for their health. Can you say more about that? Yeah, so... Um there's a number of health benefits uh, to getting kids out of diapers. And, you know, as an infectious disease specialist here at Children's Hospital LA, I see lots of kids come into my clinic uh, because they get recurrent abscesses in their groin um, or in and around where they wear diapers. 
Um, a lot of these are caused by um, uh, what's called uh, MRSA, or uh, it's a staph infection that's becoming more and more common just in the last 10 to 20 years here in the United States. And uh, this bacteria in particular loves a warm, moist, dark environment, and the diaper just provides the perfect place for that bacteria to grow. So you have a little bit of a diaper irritation, a little break in the skin, that bacteria can then get into the skin and cause these abscesses, and they're a nuisance. Families come in, recurrent abscesses, kids have to go on antibiotics multiple times. Doctor, how do I, how do I get these abscesses to go away? Unfortunately, the bacteria lives on our skin normally. Um, it's really hard to sort of get rid of all the bacteria on your skin. Um, and so I found myself telling them, hey, let's get the kid out of diapers, um, get that environment out of the, uh, uh, the, the question, uh, and then we can um, maybe clear up the abscesses. And sure enough, most parents report once kids are out of diapers, they're potty trained, hey, the abscesses went away, doctor, it's, been, it's great. So, Dr. Rosemary Shea, this isn't some kind of theoretical abstraction for you, or maybe it is, but it's also something that you've dealt with in a very realistic way. You had two children uh, who contributed their fair share of diapers to our nation's landfills, and then a third. So you did this with the third, right? How did that go? It went great. Uh, it was it was a fantastic journey. Um, it, it started off uh, you know, we, we had to be converted. We, we were skeptics ourselves at first. We came across these books um, talking about this, and it was very, very neat and interesting in concept. But I wasn't so sure that it was going to happen in reality for us. But, uh, you know, we followed these wonderful advice um, given from, from these authors. And uh, with our daughter, we took her home from the hospital. She was a few days old, and we were like, what the heck? Let's see what happens took off uh, her diaper, it was dry after a nap, and it's like, oh, okay, I'll put her on this little infant potty we got her, and, you know, <laughs> she she went potty. And, and so ever since that, it was um, a, it, it was a really, really neat uh, bonding experience, and we had our ups and downs, but in the end, you know, she was independently potty trained by the time she was 18 months of age, um, still a very independent spirit, and, and I think everything just went uh, beyond what we could have imagined. Do you have to do any kind of Pavlovian things, like, you know, uh, <laughs> some kind of cue or something? Oh, well, yes. I mean, it is said that you can provide a cue, like a whizzing sound or a whistle. Um, but, you know, I, I think infants are smart. You hold them in a potty position, and that's pretty much cue enough for them to understand, hey, this is potty position. So. So, Dr. Jeffrey Bender, we assume diapers have been around forever. We assume maybe they've been around for most of American history in some form. But, but I guess really, not that they are, they're new on the scene, but this notion that you have to rely on them is a little bit more recent than maybe most people think. Yeah, so the first disposable diapers were patented in 1955. And um, since then, they've just taken off here in uh, Western society. Um, it becomes uh, almost a necessity. You know, we're all so busy um, it's pretty easy to slap a diaper on and not worry about it until you have time. Um, and so um, that sort of industry has taken off. Um, we end up, you know, using them for the first two years of life, and then when they're ready to, to sort of go on to sort of be more independent and potty trained and everything, it's very difficult for kids to then unlearn those behaviors. They've learned that, hey, I can be – in my car seat or I can be, you know, running around playing and I can go to the bathroom and that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, but then you have to spend another one to two years training them. No, 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 no. Actually, we got to go in the toilet. If we get rid of the diapers to begin with, like we do with our daughter, 
it just become she did not want to be wet. She did not want to have messy pants. She told us when she needed to go to the bathroom, and we skipped that whole step, and it made things so much smoother. It was a lot more work up front, but uh, in the long run, I think it, it, it saved us a lot of time in the in the end and a lot of money. You know, diaper, right. disposable well, diapers are very expensive. <laughs> Anybody who has ever had to buy them knows that. Yeah, uh, exactly. Right. And nobody uh, looks back nostalgically to the time when you had to make sure you had them and you had to pay for them. So, right. um, so Dr. Rosemary Shea, if somebody is listening to this conversation right now and is pregnant or verging towards pregnancy and is thinking, hmm, this is starting to make a little sense to me, uh, I assume you don't want people calling you up at work to ask you questions about this. So what would you recommend that people do? Well, there's there's wonderful resources out there. Um, we... Uh, actually found books on the, the shelves of our public library, and I think that would be a good place to start for somebody who doesn't want to make a, a monetary investment. Um, you know, so, several of the books we use, there's one called Infant Potty Training, uh, one of the classics by Laurie uh, Bouquet. Um, there's one called Diaper Free uh, by Ingrid Bauer, and another one called The Diaper Free Baby by Christine Grosslow. So I think there's wonderful resources there as well as online, a lot of websites dedicated to this. So, you know, yeah, I would say that's exciting. You know, definitely check it out. Um, and the people have wonderful advice how to, how to start, you know, see, how, see if it works for you. Um, Dr. Jeffrey Bender, one last quick question. Um, I can see how this could be possible at home and in certain other kind of controllable environments. It seems like it may be a little bit difficult. I don't know if you're just sort of out of the world for five or six hours. Is the world ready to accommodate the needs of parents who are trying to do this? <laughs> right. Um, so uh, I think it's coming. So I think there are a lot more people who are becoming aware of this, you know, realizing that there's health benefits, there's environmental benefits, like you say, getting those disposable diapers out of our landfills, and just the financial benefits alone should get people sort of really interested. So I think as awareness grows, I think that this will become more and more acceptable. Um, one of the main reasons why we wrote this paper was that, you know, I spent 10 years of medical training and I never heard about this. Um, and so we wanted to, to, to publish this and get the word out to other pediatric clinicians who are in the community so that they can talk with their families and, and have some idea of, of uh, you know, that there are resources, there's other options besides uh, diapers. Doctors Shea and Bender, thank you so ver very much for talking to us. Congratulations on uh, your success with one-third of your offspring doing this. And, yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I think I'm out of this game. <laughs> but the rest of you, I, I encourage you to investigate this. Sounds like somebody wants to go to the potty. Do you want to go to the potty? Do you want to go to the potty? No, I want to be the Russian czar for an impenetrable two-state cybersecurity unit. Of course I have to go to the bathroom. Fine, okay. God, you could have just used the baby sign language.